Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. I am so glad you made it here. Uh, this summer has been insufferable. So thank God, as Shane mentioned, thank God for air conditioning. Uh, speaking of, of Shane, I want to thank him for last week's message that he spoke to us on Joseph. I told him it was one of my favorite messages that I've heard preach behind this pulpit over the last 25 years. And so uh, it really ministered to me. And so I decided to do uh, a Joseph part two message. So it's not even going to compare to Mr. Shane Grove, uh, but I'm going to do my best to share what I feel like the Holy Spirit put on my heart. Uh, please forgive me for my attire. Like some of you, I can see in your eyes, you're judging me because I look like I'm in junior high. Uh, it was um, a well of a morning for me and uh, just uh, blame the hat on my seven, seven, seven children. Uh, but uh, thank you for uh, grace. If you have any emails, problems with my attire, send it to uh, Shane at hotmail dot whatever um, or myspace.com, right? Okay. Um, I'm glad you made it here today. Uh, just so you know, I think next week, uh, if things allow, my wife, Kelly Wild, is going to be preaching uh, on prayer. We're going to start a new sermon series on uh, the life of prayer. We're going to look at different aspects of it. If you don't know my wife, she's a spitfire, and uh, she's going to talk about authority in prayer, so you do not want to miss that, so uh, I'm so excited. I wish she could be preaching it today, but um, we had a well of a morning. All right, you guys ready? Joseph, he's uh, in scene one. Joseph is 17 years old, and he's a special kid. Everyone say special. Like, the text reads in such a way that he has, like, um, preternatural ability. In fact, he's much like, I don't know, Matt Damon in, the, uh, what's that one movie? No, not a born identity. That's good, good Will Hunting, right? So the character, he's the character that has a photographic memory that can recite obscure text from, like, some poli-sci book. He's the guy who can solve a math problem in five minutes that took mathematical geniuses two or three years to solve. He's, he's a once-in-a-generation math talent. This is what uh, Joseph is like. In fact, in verse 2, it reads that Joseph is not only 17, but he is the son of Jacob, the son of his old age, the text reads. I think the better translation should be that Jacob favored Joseph, not because he was the son of his old age, but because he was the son of his wisdom. So Joseph is an exemplar. Shane did such a great job of fleshing it out last week. He's an exemplar of wisdom, integrity, and, and faithfulness. Um, he is uh, extraordinary in his abilities. In fact, at the age of 17, this is my opinion. Scholars might disagree with me. They're probably wrong. I'm probably right on this. But uh, my opinion is that the text reads that Jacob, his father, gave the flock over to him to oversee. I also think that means that Jacob gave 
Joseph the flock to oversee and his brothers, his older brothers to oversee. So many people read, when you read through Genesis 37, we read it uh, last week as well in scene one, that when Joseph kind of tells or we, we, we say tattles on his, on his brothers when he goes back to his father Jacob, we usually think that, oh, maybe uh, Joseph has some, some immature issues. No, I think uh, Joseph is actually coming back to his father because he oversees his brothers. His brothers won't listen to him. So he's trying to figure out with his father, how can we um, get control of these guys because they're not, they're, they're not listening um, to you. So Joseph is extraordinary. In, in fact, uh, we find in, in Genesis chapter 41, when uh, he comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says this, and he says this, this phrase is not used of any patriarch. Pharaoh, out of his own mouth, says that Joseph was filled with the Spirit of God. Now, to be sure, Abraham was filled with the Spirit of God, and he was, exempl he was an exemplar of faith. We know Isaac was um, filled with God's presence, and we know Jacob was and had God's presence, but the, the text does not read until we get to Joseph that the Spirit of God filled anyone but him. So Joseph is filled with the Spirit of God. Now let me just say this really quick. The whole story, the meta story of Genesis is all about how God remains faithful in spite of human wickedness and folly. So Abraham is not a perfect example. And I think this is good for all of us. Abraham, he was a pimp. He was an example of faith, but he pimped out his wife twice. Isaac was a little bit less of a pimp, but he was also went pimping every now and then, <laughs> pimped out his wife once, right? They, okay, so they, these patriarchs are, are, are the guys that God wants to work through to bless the world and transform creation, which has been disfigured by human, human wickedness and folly, and they're pimping out their wives. Then we come to Jacob. Jacob is, is the worst, right? He's dysfunctional. Uh, he cons his brother Esau, his twin brother Esau, we all know is psychopathic. So, when you're reading the text, you're like, oh my God, this, we're all screwed, people. Like these, this is the family that God wants to use to bless the world. And man, they are, they are dysfunctional on another level. And if you've grown up in a dysfunctional family, just take a deep breath and know that God can work in any situation, in any tension, in any difficulty. So he's 17, he has preternatural ability, and he's filled with the Spirit of God. Let me just say this really quick. Many people come to me, and I've been in ministry for, I can't believe this, 25 years. And over the years, I've had asked people, people have asked me, Chris, uh, how do I know that I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, I say, well, in baptism and faith, you have been given the Spirit. You've been immersed in the Spirit. And I'll quote 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But what are some practical manifestations of that? Well, I'll take them to Galatians chapter 5. And most pastors will do this. And it says that the Spirit, everyone say the Spirit. The Spirit produces what? Love, joy, peace, right? Gentleness. So if you're growing in love, if you're growing in peace, if you're growing in gentleness, patience is the hardest one. Can I get an amen? But if you're growing in patience, you're not cussing anybody out with the traffic out an Eagle Road, God's doing something in your heart, Right? So usually I quote Galatians chapter 5, and then I'll take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and say, also, which is becoming less controversial, when I was growing up, and really the past hundred years, because of North American dispensationalism that I can't 
fully flesh out for us has made this controversial, but thankfully we're in a new age of the church where this is less controversial. But there's also, we know that the Spirit is in our life or there's evidence of the Spirit in our life when we have wisdom and we have prophecy and we see miracles and we believe in healing. There are people in here, you don't even know it, but you have the Spirit of God in your life and God's called you to be a healer. Some of you, you've been given the gift of, of, of word of knowledge. We'll talk about this enough. And you might not even know it, but because you have the Spirit, there are things that you can see, and they're latent within you, and you might not identify it as a word of knowledge, but that's the Spirit of God giving you glimpses over people, and you begin to see things like, okay, I, 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 I feel something about that person, and then God begins to speak to you. That's a word of knowledge. So usually I take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and kind of give them a tiny little exposition about some of the manifestations of the Spirit of God in our life. And we'll talk about that uh, later. But one thing I think the church doesn't talk about a lot is that when the Spirit of God fills your life, the shape of your life will be dreaming. Joel chapter 2 says, in the new age of the Spirit, when the Spirit is poured out, we don't live, let me say this really quick as a qualifier, we don't live in the age of a pandemic. We don't live in the age of a constitutional republic. We don't live in the age of laissez-faire economics. We don't live in the age of killer viruses or whatever. We live, if you just know, we live in the age of the Spirit. That's the age that we live in. So Joel 2 says, when the Spirit of God is poured out, guess what happens? Your old men, that's, I'm a middle-aged guy, but I'm claiming it, will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. To me, they're the inside, dreams and vision are the inside and the outside of the same thing. Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and gets one of the best sermons ever. 3,000 people are saved. He quotes Joel chapter 2, which I just quoted, and says, this has been fulfilled through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who's now at the helm of the cosmos, running the show. So, as followers of Jesus, in evidence, I think one of the major evidences that you are in step with the Spirit is that the shape of your life is dreaming. Big dreams, not small dreams. And when I mean big dreams, I don't mean the self-serving, I want to be a social, like, social influencer uh, for the sake of self-actualization. I'm not talking about American-style therapeutic materialism. What I'm talking about are dreams that God puts in your heart for other people. And these dreams are not small dreams. Please hear me. I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting really Pentecostal on you today. And I'm a teacher at heart. I'm a teacher at heart, but I got to preach this. Right? The church, if we want to fulfill what we were worshiping God, we want to see a move of God in our church and in our neighborhoods and in our cities. We need some people that are receptive to the Spirit of God. And when we open up our hearts to the Spirit of God, He's going to put a dream in you, and that dream is going to transcend your limitations. And so we got to learn. This is why we can't walk by sight. We got to walk by faith. 
Come on, somebody. Is because the dreams that God gives us are so big framed in their character and they're so beyond possible that you have to rely on the Spirit of God. The shape of your life are dreams. So Joseph receives two dreams, two figures important within this, the, the, the Joseph narrative. Uh, Pot, uh, Potiphar's, excuse me, the, the, the guards who were imprisoned with Joseph, uh, they had two dreams. Pharaoh had two dreams. Two symbolizes the confirmation that God's will will come to pass. So Joseph is not just dreaming some self-serving dream. Joseph in scene one receives at the age of 17, two dreams from God and they have royal overtones. Royal overtones. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit on you. The author of Genesis is basically trying to take Joseph as an exemplar of faithfulness, and he's trying to trace it all the way back to Adam. And he's saying with the royal overtones of these dreams and tracing it all the way back to Adam, he's saying this Joseph could be the new Adam. He's the royal image bearer. He's the one in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 that was talked about, hey, there will be a wounded victor, an anointed one who will crush the serpent and the serpent will kill him. But through his death, there will be victory. It's this Joseph that the author is pointing us to that could possibly be in the narrative the anointed one. So he's an exemplar of faithfulness. Uh, he has wisdom. He's ex ex extraordinary. Not only that, in Genesis 39, it says, and when you read Hebrew, they rarely describe features of the characters. And when they do, it means that there's something extraordinary about him. Genesis 39, the text tells us that Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. Right? He is very symmetrical. He's like Spencer and Ethan Danielson. They just perfect, perfect. I mean, I work out with them and they just, they just look perfect. I'm like, why can't God, why can't I look like them, right? They just have perf perfect jaw. They got a nice fade and just, they look good in baggy clothes, skinny clothes, boxy clothes. Like there's only a certain kind of clothes that I even get close to looking normal in, right? Okay. So Joseph has it all. The Spirit of God has filled him. He's been entrusted with favor. And then in scene one, the story shifts. It says his brothers conspire against him and throw him in a pit. Genesis 37 is framed around two major verbs. And these two verbs um, in the Hebrew, again, they kind of, they, they differ a little bit. But essentially these verbs are to be taken. So Joseph, the anointed one, the exemplar of faithfulness, Right, The one that's not like his great-grandfather and grandfather and father. This is someone special. And he's taken. Says the brothers took him and threw him in a pit. And then at the very end it says that the Egyptian uh, or the Midianite traders took him down to Egypt. He was taken. The dream was taken. And I think in many ways... The author of this story, and I want to be careful with interpreting it this way, but I think it's true. As Joseph is in that pit, I think that represents the entire human story. Yeah. That we live in, in a world that, I'll say it this way really quick. I'm going to go about four hours today, if that's okay with you, because I'm feeling it. I'm kidding, but who knows? 
Psalm 24, I'm going to give you a consolation of scripture. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm chapter 50, 50 says that, that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills and he knows the birds by name. I love the end of Job and the, this, this monologue. It wasn't a dialogue, it was a monologue. God was monologuing as he was talking to Job. Job 38, God basically says that I designed a beautiful cosmos and beautiful things. Then we come to Job 39. It's, it says that basically God lavishes concern and care on the least strategic creature like an ostrich. And then in Job chapter 40, it says that God limits evil. Leviathan and behemoth are narrative types of the Satan, Hasatan, right? God eventually, and this is, we don't have answers to why there is evil. I'm going to get to that here pretty quick in Job. But we have an answer that God will limit evil and stop evil. So the point that I'm trying to make is God is in charge. He never gets voted out of office. He's not, he's not in office one day and out the next. He doesn't take a day off like we take it. He doesn't have weekends. Come on, somebody. He's in charge of the cosmos. And he's working everything out for our good. But to bring this back full circle, we know that we live in a war-torn torn universe. This, this world, though it's God has been dis radically disfigured by human wickedness and folly. And we know there's unsympathetic realities in this world that wants to take the dream that God has put in our heart. And yet, as Shane talked about so elo eloquently last week, is that even though things are taken from us, loved ones and jobs and futures and health, and, and there's so many things, so many things that have been taken from us, the good news is that God can take back what the enemy has taken from us. So Joseph, like all of us, are in this pit of despair. Psalm chapter 40, which articulates what many scholars call cosmic geography, begins in verse 1. says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Verse 2, he drew me from the pit of destruction and despair. Doesn't that feel like Joseph right there? Out of the miry bog. In the Hebrew, it reads mud, mud. Not just mud, but mud, mud. This isn't just like a little bit of mud. This is like mud up to your neck. Like this is, you're not at a cul-de-sac, you're at an end. This is a terminus. You have no possible, you're sinking in it, right? If you've seen Quiet Place 1, it's like you're sinking in the, you know? No, you haven't seen, okay, never mind. Bad analogy. I didn't watch that movie, I just heard about it. Out of the miry bog, out of the mud mud, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, the song of praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to, the, to, proud or to those who go astray after a lie. Cosmic geography simply is like this three-tiered kind of pattern. You have the heights of the garden, then you have the wilderness, and then you have the pit of despair. Joseph is in the pit of despair. And as you read the text, there's a tension because you're, you're asking the question, God, you're faithful, but how are you going to get Joseph, this preternatural kid, whose everything in this moment has been taken from him? How are you going to work this out? Some of you are in this situation. You have a mountain in your life, and you're like, I just cannot get my mind around how I'm going to get through this tension, this frustration, this problem, this difficulty. That's the tension in scene one. Then we transition to scene two. Scene two is basically a dirge. It's a, it's, a, it's a funeral scene. The brothers conspire, right? They scheme. 
And what they do, and this is what sin does, sin always demands a sacrifice, and Shane talked about this last week. So they throw Joseph into the pit, they sell him to the Midianite traders, and then they come up with this scheme, we're gonna deceive our father. So what do they do? They kill a goat. Sin doesn't just shape your life, it also demands sacrifices. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, man, if you're willing to lie, you'll be willing to steal. And once you're willing to steal, you'll be willing to kill. And some heavy stuff, right? So we come to this point where they're scheming against the father and they send the, the cloak back to him because they're scared. They love their father, but they know what they're doing. And they send the forensics to uh, Jacob. Jacob, there's no CSI back then, right? No cop show. There's no DNA analysis. Jacob sees the the coat torn, Joseph's coat torn, and the blood on the coat, and he just works from the assumption based on the forensics that his son has passed away. C.S. Lewis says this, grief, when he lost his wife, he goes, I didn't realize that grief felt so much like fear. And I feel the, when I read this this week, I felt the fear of Jacob. I could just He loses his son, but he also loses his future. This is the anointed one. What what am I going to do? And so he works, and he sees or begins to see reality based on the presentation of the forensics. Now, here's our challenge today in scene two, our challenge is that we have to change our perspective. And this is gonna take time, and I'm learning this. I'm not perfect in this because, as many of you know, I've had uh, for a year, over a year, many health challenges. My body, my stinking body, just doesn't wanna do what it's been doing for 44 years. And it stinks. I know I look 22, but I've been alive for 45 years. And I cycle through these symptoms and thank God for my wife because she just goes full charismatic on me all the time. We don't accept these symptoms. They're lies. They're lying symptoms. I declare healing over you. I'm the analytic guy. And I'm like, it's over. (laughs) And I'm learning. So I'm, I'm preaching to myself, okay? And I'm learning, and this is what I'm learning. We have to change our perspective, and it will take time. Our perspective on reality by prioritizing God's faithful word over everything else. If you don't do that, you will be, and this is from my own experience, you will be enslaved to the inferior. You will be enslaved to the forensics, in other words. You will be enslaved by what you see. In fact, to be enslaved to the inferior is that the shape of your life is influenced by what you see. It's influenced by the tensions of your life. You work bottom-up theology. You have an experience, and you extrapolate that experience onto who God is rather than taking your experience and saying, God, that's who you are. You are faithful. You are God, and you work down from God, and you allow God and who he is and his faithfulness to shape your experience. Are you hearing me this morning? Here's the thing. God, God 
is faithful, even when the forensics say, no, he isn't. God is faithful, please hear me, even though the forensics, the data, the test, the tensions, the situation, the difficulties say, no, he isn't. Even when things seem absolutely impossible, I am declaring as your pastor today that God is faithful to work everything out for your good. In fact, Genesis chapter 50, 20 is, I think, the kind of the meta theme of Genesis. I mean, there are a lot of different layers to this, and, and I can't get into to all of this. Uh, but Genesis 50, 20, Joseph tells his brothers after Jacob passes away and says, guys, you don't have to worry. Your evil was meant to harm me, but God used your evil to bring about his purposes. I don't know. Hey, we, I, I could spend three years trying to give an apologetic or a theodicy on why God allows evil. But I just wish, I'm going, to be, I'm going to sit down right now. I'm just going to be really honest with you. And then I'll stand back up. I wish God would just get rid of evil right now. He could do it. I think there would be major consequences and I can't get into that. I think he would violate authentic freedom and there's much more that would be violated. But we have hope. Even though God doesn't annihilate evil right away. Our hope is that in a very strange way, and to be honest, an annoying way. In a very annoying way, God uses the difficulty and the harm and the evil and the frustrations and the pits that you're in and the dreams that have been taken. And in unexpected ways, he moves his strange purposes and plans for your life forward. Here's the better news. He will always limit evil. He will not let evil run amok. There's only one time in human history where God said yes to evil. You could do whatever you want. And evil came to its full height on Good Friday. And it's Jesus the Son working with God the Father in a redemptive way took on the full weight of evil. And broke its power. Come on, somebody. And he bodily came back from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven. And now he rules over all things and he poured out his spirit on his people. Come on. But God will always limit evil and strangely work difficult circumstances for the good of his people. In fact, I... I, I heard this once. There's not one problem that God does not have an answer for. There's not one problem that God has not already fully thought, thought, thought through. Can I say that again? There's not one problem that God does not have an answer for. I'm sensing some unbelief here today. Really? Not one problem that God has not already fully thought through and solved. This isn't to say, um, oh, we're advocating, if you're a theologian here today, we're advocating meticulous sovereignty. I don't believe in that. I believe God allows for authentic freedom. Like, we make choices, yes. But God takes the muddledness of the human story and the tragicness of our world 
and all the complexity of our life and in a beautiful way, an annoying way, he moves his purposes and plans forward. So I think the background of this funeral scene in chapter two, what's really affecting Jacob is not just grief, it is grief, but it's fear. Fear. And I think we're living in a culture of fear. Can I get an amen to that? I'm really hot with this jacket. I'm about ready to pass out. But just go with me. We all, we're all afraid of something. I remember as, as a little boy, I was afraid of clowns, which I think is totally reasonable. If you ever watch Stephen King's, you know, the it, you, you should be afraid, right? I was afraid. I, I, I just, my memory, I just have a pretty good memory. I remember, but it was like two or three. I, I was afraid of being a redhead. I didn't see any other redheads. I was the only redhead that I knew of until we moved to Boise, right? God's, this is God's country. And I had one friend and his name was Ben and he was a redhead and we were best friends <laughs> until I met Shane. Anyways, I was afraid of fire trucks. Right? I remember one time, I was about three, and I was at my friend's house, and I heard a fire truck, and for me, it, it was the equivalent of nuclear war. As, here's the thing. Children, I think, tap into reality more than adults do. This is why Jesus said, if you want to enter my kingdom, you have to become what? You have to become like a child. My wife was afraid of everything growing up. She was afraid of dirt. Yes, you were. You were afraid. She was afraid, I mean, ev dogs, Santa Claus, ev everything. Yeah. She, and now my son, King, it's funny. King now, he's our fourth kid, fifth kid. I, I don't even know. Okay. He's one of our children. King lately has been waking up in the middle of the night and he calls out for unfortunately mama not dead dad but we're we're working on that part but he calls out for mama and Kel will come up and uh he'll say I'm scared I'm scared or it's scary it's scary it's funny how children tap into reality more than adults and by reality I think children tap into fragility and vulnerability more than we do I think if we're not careful as adults we forget how vulnerable we are I, I just remember as a kid, I was tapped into the terrors of creation, tapped into it. And I knew something real about creation. See, this is what fear does. Please hear what I'm saying. Um, Bible makes it very clear. Do not be afraid. That's the greatest commandment, the most repeated commandment in scripture. And I believe 100% in that. But I think fear is also, and I, I hope this brings hope to you, because some of you are afraid and you're like, I, I can't feel like I can't get rid of this fear. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how you can work your way out of your fear and, and, and anxiety. Um, as God says, do not be afraid. He's not saying you, you can't feel fear. Because many people, when they hear that, they're like, oh man, I feel fear. I must be in diso disobedient and God must be far from me. That is the furthest thing from the truth. When God says, do not be afraid, he's simply saying, do not let your life be shaped or defined by fear. Let your life be shaped and prioritize my faithful promises over you. But fear has a purpose. Fear, 
I think, is a revelation that reality is scarier than we thought it was. The hills have eyes, apparently, right? Some of you watch that movie, and I'll pray for your soul. Right? Reality, please hear me. Fear is a revelation that wakes us up to the terrors of creation. Reality is scarier than, it, than we thought it was. But here's the thing. Reality is also through fear. Fear, I'll say it this way. Fear is a revelation that reality cannot be cured by self-sufficiency alone. If you allow fear to do its work, please hear what I'm saying, it should drive you to a point of, of, of desperation. And this is what I love when my son King gets scared. Who does he cry out for? Cries out for dad or mom. King just doesn't just sit in his crib and ah, think to himself how I'm going to overcome fear. Ah, there's monsters in the closet. Oh my God, I'm going to die. No, the first thing he does is he realizes there are terrifying potentially terrifying things in my room. Dad! This is what fear should do. Fear should drive you to a point of desperation and to a place where you draw close to your father. And when you draw close to your father, it is your father who alleviates the fear. It's the father, come on somebody, who gives you the peace that you can't give yourself. It's funny, when I, I've, I've shared this story many times before, but I, I was with my, my sisters. I was eight. I think I was in third grade. We were walking up the hill. Uh, we were living off a golf course, and uh, there was a kid that was, I was eight, he was nine, and he had three friends, and they were throwing rocks at us. And then they were saying, you know, stuff like, you redhead, whatever. And so I got infuriated. Never mess with a redhead. We lose our minds. We're... We got anger problems, okay? So I said, I'm going to fight this kid. And so I stood there, and Rochelle started crying. Tracy was just blabbing her mouth. She's a talker. And we were like, shut up, right? And this nine-year-old kid, it's like slow-mo. He pushes me, and I'm like, and as I felt his strength, I'm like, Oh, no, right? And I remember falling on the cement, and I was just afraid. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is so much stronger than me. So I remember I got up, and I just said, hey, I live three houses down, and my dad's six foot five. No. And he was a college athlete. And he took second in state track. So I want you to bring your dad out. And my dad, did I mention he's six foot five? And he works out as I'm backing up. Come on, dad! Please! I think that was the most healthy thing that I have done in a long time. When I was afraid, I, I realized, okay, this guy's... He's too big for me, so I need to get someone bigger. So fear is a revelation that self-sufficiency 
cannot help is not a cure. Only Jesus can help. And there's just so much more that we can talk about. Here's the thing. If you don't feel fear, feel fear ever, then I think there's something wrong with you. I wonder if you are living in reality. As we close here, um, one Dutch theologian said the principle of, of life right now is the fear of death. And it shapes our culture. The good news is Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 says that what? Jesus conquered and defeated death. But here's the problem. If you don't make a choice to put your trust in Jesus, if you don't allow a fear to draw you out of yourself and bring you closer to your Father in heaven and allow him to bring his peace and, and speak his promise and his good word over you, there's only one other thing you're going to do. You're going to do everything to protect yourself. Fear, and we're seeing this in our culture because it's now the, prince, the defining principle of our culture is that when we become addicted to fear, fear leads to self-preservation at all costs. What are those costs? Well, when you allow fear to lead to self-preservation instead of to Jesus, what happens? Well, you lose your dignity, you lose your compassion, you, you, you lose your love, you lose your strength, you, you lose your desire to help. Come on, somebody. One news anchor, she said, I'm not judging her at all. I think she's just in microcosm where so many people are at, and I think we just all need prayer because I think a lot of us are like this. She said a couple uh, months ago, and I disagree with everything she has to say, but I felt what she was experiencing. She confessed on her live segment her inability to not see every person as an existential threat. And the reason why she said that is because her state, her particular state, had lifted the mask mandate. And I'm not, here, please hear me, I'm not saying anything for or against masks. You have your opinions, that's great. That's not my point. Can I get an amen to that? Don't you dare email me, because I'll email you back. Right? And my fingers will, ah! Actually, email me. Come on, bro, email me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're not talking about masks here. I'm just talking about the real issue. The real issue is we're addicted to fear. In fact, one news organization, and I'm not trying to expose them, but they were exposed on camera by saying, yeah, fear sells. I disagree with them. Fear doesn't sell. Fear enslaves. Fear enslaves people. So funny, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, my wife and I, we, we like to take walks in the morning, and I wasn't with my wife. I just had two of my kids this one particular morning, and we're on, we have a green belt by our house, and so we were, I was walking on this side with the thing King Impressed, and there was this couple coming down on the left side, and um, so I think it was King, he sneezed and he coughed. And then I, tr and I just, you know, when I do that, I want to respect people's space. Can we respect people's space? My, before the pandemic, if you got here, I would have punched you. After the pandemic, you get my face like this, I'll still punch you, okay? <laughs> space, please. So I just, I appreciate space. So I went over all the way on the edge of, you know, just, you know, I just want to make sure that they felt okay. This couple, and again, I'm not trying to judge them. I'm just saying the power of fear and how it enslaves people. And I'm not in any way trying to humiliate them because I have experienced this. But they actually got off the path 
into the shrubs, round the trees, didn't even look at me. Didn't even look at me. So your pastor, who has to repent a lot, turned around and said, wow, wow. I repented. That I did. I should not have done that. I've been there before. Have you been there before? Maybe it wasn't during this pandemic, but some, you, come on. You just fear can cripple you. So this is not to judge them at all, even though I did judge them, but I repented. It's amazing. In the words of one scholar, um, fear what it does to your mind, it animalizes you. It enslaves you, it animalizes you. For example, my best friend Shane, he just knows I have a nature anxiety disorder, but he told me this last week a story about a man who was attacked by a grizzly bear in the wild. So I'm just like, Shane, come on. Because I'm going camping in two weeks. Can you guys pray for me? I don't own a gun, but I'm going to buy an AK. Is that, no, I'm not going to, that's wrong, politically wrong. I don't know. I don't even know what's right anymore, okay? So, guys, erase that from the video. I'm going to get a machete. I'm, gonna, I'm just like, I'm terrified. But anyways, he's telling me this story of uh, this hunter. He's hunting elk, and he happens to come along this grizzly bear who had two cubs. The grizzly bear is startled takes the cub somehow, runs up to the ridge, hides the cubs. Little does he know, the grizzly bear is coming around to attack him. He attacks him. He plays dead, which he claims saved his life. I... <sighs> okay, I'm just having a moment here. <laughs> so then he gets up, and he's heading back to his, his truck, and the grizzly bear is kind of on the same trajectory and attacks him again for the second time, and he plays dead. I don't know how you could do that, right? But he does, he survives. Everyone, to, to God be the glory, right? He then gets to his truck and he kind of like, he, he um, gives like his whole commentary on it. I'm like, oh my God, I wouldn't even be on a video. I'd be in the hospital, I'm like, give me morphine, give me, come on, like amputate the leg! Save me, doc, right? But anyways, he's like just sharing all of so I, guys, I'm weird. <laughs> but he's like just on video saying, I got attacked by a bear, right? So calm. But I, as Shane was telling me the story, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what happens. Like, here, here's the thing. The mother bear was not a psycho serial killer who had a thirst for human flesh. No, she was acting on an animal motherly instinct to protect her cubs. That's called self-preservation. And what did she do? She terrorized viciously this man. This is what our culture is doing. Our culture is addicted to fear. And when you're addicted to fear, you're addicted to control. And when you're addicted to control, what will happen? You will start to tribalize. The logic that will define your life is self-preservation. I don't know why I'm pacing back and forth, but whatever, right? You will start judging and treating people with contempt. You will treat other people like animals. You'll treat them like an existential threat. And I think somebody in this world needs to love 
and to care and to serve and to bless people. And we need to be wise without question. Again, I'm not trying to make any political statement here at all. We just need, we need to be wise. But man, we need to teach this world how to love. How to love. Fear and slays. My, my, my boys and I, we watched Shark Week this week. And as we're watching this one horrifying episode, they both got right next to me. And I'm like, bro, get away from me. Bro, get away from me. Quincy's hugging me and saying, Dad, I am never going to go in the ocean again. That, that's what fear does. If it doesn't lead you to Jesus. That's why do not be afraid. It's not just for yourself help, therapeutic, subjective sense of peace. That's great. We want peace. But if you allow fear to define and shape your life, and I'm getting away from the story here, but just hear, hear me. It, man, it leads you to demonizing the other. And we're called not to do that. And do you understand I'm not talking about politics? I'm just talking about who we are called to be. Can I get an amen? This is why I love my wife. I love my wife. She, she will go into grocery stores now, and she does this in a wise way, but she just smiles. Because we're living in an age now, no one looks at each other. And I, again, I get it. Fear is in the air, but someone needs to give people hope. And she's just like, how are you doing today? And I'm like, babe, come on, don't look at him. She's just dragging me along. How are you? I don't know you, but you look great. I'm like, shut up. And that's, I want to be more like my wife. We need to bring hope to people. As I end here. I'm going to bring this full circle, but, but, but ultimately fear is a cousin of anxiety. And I, I teach about this a lot. It's something that I've experienced through my health problems, but anxiety is rooted in uh, the unknown because what is unknown scares us. We want to know where we're going ahead of time. According to one scholar, we do this because uh, we think we can handle whatever. If we can get ahead of time, if we can think about every problem in the future, if we can what if every scenario, we think magically we can get ahead of all our problems and it never works. We, want, we, we simply don't want to put ourselves out of our misery. We want to put ourselves out of our mystery. Anxiety cannot handle mystery. It has to have all the details. I'm going to sit down again because I'm tired. But let me just say this. God, when he speaks to you, and this is frustrating, will never give you all the details. He doesn't always give you the specifics. He will give you a promise. Yes, he'll give you a glimpse. The Bible says that we only see in part, right? I wish he would, God, can you please just one day give me all the details for the next five years? That would be awesome because that would relieve all my fear and anxiety. And God's saying, no, I'm not going to give you all the details because I want you to learn to trust in me. I want you to know that I am the Lord, your creator. 
So stop trying to put yourself out of the mystery. Lean into the mystery. Not some postmodern nonsense where we're nihilist and we can't know anything about God. No, God will speak to you, yes. But he doesn't give you all the information that you want. Anxiety has a lust for all that information. Worry, in the words of one pastor, actually is like witchcraft. We're attempting to manipulate future outcomes as we think about a future scenario over and over and over and over and over and over again. And as your pastor, I made a decision to stop thinking about the future. I had to do it yesterday. I had to do it the day before. I had to do it this morning. I cannot think about the future because I know I'm going to catastrophize it. And the reason why Jesus, as we close in Matthew chapter 6, says, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Sufficient is today is its own trouble is because when you're so distracted because you get ahead of God, you get ahead of time, right? Your head, it's Monday, but your head is in Thursday. Right? What happens is you're so distracted by the possibilities of Thursday, you can't see what God is doing in the present. Give us tomorrow our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. And I'm learning to frame my thinking, yes, we need to think about the future, but a future, and I'll talk about that later in another sermon series for 10 hours, okay? But we need to think about the future, yes, according to God's perspective. But ultimately, we have to define our thinking by what God is doing in the moment. Worry is a profound distraction. Corey Ten Boom, as I close, said, once I had a burden that I weighed heavily on me, I sat it down or I sat down and looked at it. Then I saw that everything about my burden was borrowed. Our, our, our part belonged to the something, something of the next, I, my burden was associated with the next week. My burden was a huge, stupid mistake. I realized that worrying is carrying tomorrow's burden with today's strength. It's being premature. It's thinking of tomorrow on the calendar, and it does not do anything for you. In fact, she then like sharpens that quote up. She goes, worrying is carrying tomorrow's uh, load with today's strength. It's carrying two days at once. It is moving in tomorrow ahead of time. And it usually doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It takes today its strength. Wow. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? We have seen one, Joseph the dreamer, has been taken. Jacob prioritizes the forensics over the faithfulness of God. The good news is, is that God in a strange way, we know the end of the story, takes all the tension of this Joseph narrative, all the betrayal, all the psychopathic behavior, even the good things, and he moves his purpose forward. In fact, as I, I've said this four times, as I end, the author shows in Genesis and in the Pentateuch at large, according to one scholar, an intense interest in past events. He's repeating certain things and strategically returns to the notion of the last days. You find this in Genesis 49. I don't have time to get into, into the details. And shows us 
also his interest in the future. So the central concern of the author of the Pentateuch as a compositional strategy is the indissoluble relationship between the past and the future. In other words, that's that which happened to God's people portends of what will happen in the future. The past, in other words, is seen as a lesson for the future. And the future is always looking back at the past. It's funny, my, my daughter, I don't, I don't think I mentioned it already, as I close here, my daughter, she, uh, it was two years ago, we were, I was teaching the Bible to her, and I was saying, uh, Wit, how do we apply this particular story? And she's like, Dad, this is just all history. She's such a smart little girl. And then right after her, my son goes, I'm an atheist. And I'm like, stop it. <laughs> Kel, what are you teaching my children? Right? No. My son's no longer an atheist. To God be the glory. Um, but then I had to talk to my, my daughter about, okay, no, no, no. These aren't just, these aren't just like stories way back then. Like so many times, and, and, and we have this approach to scripture. We're radically dislocated from scripture and history. Well, in fact, when you become a Christian, you're, you enter into this story and the future and the past all just kind of come together. Can I get an amen? So what God did in the past, and I feel like Charles Spurgeon right now, he will also do in the future. And what he does in the future is all connected to what he has done in the past. They are linked together. So if God was faithful in the past, if God got you through that problem in the past, if you thought you were in the bottom in the past, good news, God will also work out everything for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So who is Joseph in this story? That's just narrative type, typology. That's just a, a nerdy phrase to say that Joseph is an event sign pointing to Jesus. Joseph, the favorite son. Jesus, the blessed son. Joseph, right, the model, the exemplar of faithfulness and integrity, goes down into the pit and then goes down into Egypt. Jesus willingly went down to the cross and gave his life, come on somebody, for you and I. And then guess what? This royal overtones, Joseph through disaster and betrayal is set as the prince of Egypt. And he saves the world. It's through the death of Jesus and his resurrection that blessing was released through the world. Life was given to his people. Come on, somebody. Jesus is our ultimate answer. Not you or I, not a breathing technique, and those are, those are important, right? Not some exercise, those are great. Yoga, hey, if that's your thing, great. Self-sufficiency is not the answer. Self-protection is not the answer. Come on, let's let fear do its work. Let it draw us to the one who can save your soul and your body and your mind and your health 
and your children. And his name is Jesus. He is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. And every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is in charge. Amen. Amen. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you, Father, that you're here. Lord, I pray you would pour out your spirit on your sons and daughters. I thank you that you would pour out miracles on this church. I thank you that you would grow our faith. Lord, prepare our hearts, Lord, as Kel comes next week and talks about authority and faith. Lord, I thank you that a move of God is taking place in this church. A move of God is taking place in this city. Lord, help us to walk in humility and love, not in fear. Lord, help us to understand that if we're, we're wrestling with fear and anxiety, that it could be that you're allowing those things in our life to draw us closer to you. You are the answer, not, not the government. And I'm not saying anything against the government, but you are the answer. Humans are limited. We are creaturely. Lord, we have technology and thank God for technology and thank God for good medicine and thank God for doctors and thank God for experts. But Father, we need you. And I declare that you are our salvation. You are the source of our strength. You are our song. You are our rescuer. I thank you, Isaiah 41, that it is you who are talking to us today. Do not be afraid. I thank you, Father, that you are in charge of all things. And I pray that you will pour out your spirit, breathe your life and your love and your strength into us today and do miracles. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.